Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Phoebe Watson. Hello! We are on our last episode before the summer break. And it's been a wonderful season of Risky Enchantment. I really enjoyed recording a lot of these episodes. I mean, I always enjoy recording the episodes, but it has been a lovely year. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Yes. And to close out this part of the year, we'll be back in September. Um, We're going a little bit lighter for this episode, a little bit more fun. In some ways, you could maybe argue this uh, episode is a very extended what we're enjoying at the moment (laughs) section. You may hear featured many of the things we have talked about on previous what we are enjoying at the moment sections. Yeah, exactly. Because I was trying to think what would be a nice kind of tone to set people off on for the summer. And uh, what kind of sprung to mind was just something that we've been really enjoying, which is that... um, For the last couple of years, it's been, you know, we started, actually, we started this season with New Year's resolution. So I'm going to tell you that this is the impact of a New Year's resolution, which is extremely fortuitous and not planned at all. But I have had a New Year's resolution to watch more classic movies and more old movies. I have always been a fan of movies. I I do think I find filmmaking very interesting. I was part of an after school group in secondary school when I was a teenager of uh, young Irish filmmakers. So filmmaking is always something that's kind of been very interesting to me. And when I went to university, part of my English course was actually to study films and part of my music course was to study film music. So it's been something that's kind of stayed with me, but I've always felt like It's a little bit hard to track down a lot of the films that are on the kind of best of all time films. And it does take a little bit of work. And I think that was the reason why we thought it would be a nice thing to talk about on the podcast, which is that it's not always totally easy to access old movies. And so we're going to make the case for it. (laughs) Yeah. And you're the expert here. I'm the amateur. I know very, very little about movie making at all. (laughs) Except for having to listen to me go on and on and on about it sometimes. Exactly. (laughs) I've learned lots that way. And so when talking about old movies and classic movies, I'm kind of specifically referencing the golden age of Hollywood, which is kind of like mid-1930s to mid-1960s. And obviously during that time, a lot of different types of films were made. There is not one type of classic movie. You know, you've got everything from Alfred Hitchcock's psychological thrillers all the way to romance stories, to drama, to war movies, to westerns. Like, it covers a huge range. And so I'm obviously not going to talk about all of those. What we wanted to talk specifically about was movie musicals, because this was also a time for... At the, uh, like a golden age for movie musicals and I adore them and that's kind of been the area that we focused on the most when we've been going through these old movies that's definitely the ones that I've gravitated to the most I can't wait to explore more there's been exceptions like I think 
I I know I'm I have to admit that I hadn't seen Casablanca until the last couple of years. Um, it was the, like the only one of them that I had seen that you had. Yeah, the joys of having it on your junior search, leaving cert, leaving cert course <laughs> yeah. for a secondary school, and obviously there's the that's a whole other area of like noir and drama and all of those are great as well. But I have a big spot in my heart for the movie musical because they're great. They're great and they're so spectacular and so escapist and so delightful. And these are all things that we're going to talk about. And we're even going to manage uh, to bring it back around to a Christian and a Catholic perspective. So we got that in there. <laughs> we, we managed to, to wedge, we are, <laughs> wedge it in at the end. We are on topic. Yes, we're not giving ourselves that much of a, a summer break. This isn't the last day of school with kids running around going mental. <laughs> Um, and I think in some ways, maybe where I should start is actually with just saying that whenever I'm telling people to watch some of the classic movies and some of the kind of famous old movies, the one I always go to say is Singing in the Rain. Because I just think, I like, I think it's so accessible. It's so funny. It's so glamorous. It's so mesmerizing and it's very accessible to modern audiences. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more in depth about it in a minute. But like, if you're, I, I would say that there's a good chance if you do like movies at all, you've seen Singing in the Rain, it's probably the one you're most likely to have seen. But if you haven't seen any of these kinds of movies, start with Singing in the Rain. <laughs> it was the one you started me on. Absolutely. And you were horrified that I hadn't seen that. I watch it every year. I feel like I've talked about me categorizing things as summery or wintry or autumny in my head. I feel like a lot of old classic movies are summery and I would even call Singing in the Rain a summery movie, but I watched it for the first time at Christmas. And so in a very real way, it is one of my all time favorite Christmas movies, even though it has nothing to do with Christmas. And I think the thing I want to start off with, with talking about these movies, though, is that I think for Catholics, um, there's maybe a slightly reactionary tendency to look at this era of filmmaking and hold it up on a very high pedestal because it has a lot of morals that Catholics today still resonate with, or it has an aversion to showing violence, which I think a lot of people who are concerned with the kind of media that they are consuming feel fits in with them more. I certainly appreciate that. <laughs> Most of these movies are P-rated, which is great. Yes, they are rated P for Phoebe. Yeah. Uh, they get the, the stamp of approval. And what I am going to go into say is that I do think this is a really good thing. And... It's not by accident as well, which is to say that actually this was an era in which Hollywood was sort of um, amazingly, when we think about it, uh, under the thumb of the wishes of the Catholic Church, uh, which is that... A, Mind blown. Yeah, I know. Um, it's not really what we think of now in terms of like the Catholic Church having a presence in media and artistic expression. And it came in the form of, first of all, the, what, what audiences were demanding and then more specifically into the formal creation of something called the Hayes Code, which it was a, a set of censorship rules on what could be put and put into uh, put into films. These were this was a code that Hollywood in general voluntarily signed themselves up to and was self-regulation, um, which I think is important to say, because I think one of the things that when especially secular people look back on the age, 
in a kind of condemnatory way at looking at these censorship laws, they would see it as as this big imposition. But in fact, as as I understand it, it was something that they volunteered to do to almost um, sidestep the fact that if they didn't, the government was going to come in and, and sanction them and censor them. So it was interesting that in some ways it was actually a step to try and make these codes more artistically literate and not just governmental. Um, but it, it is a kind of interesting... It's an interesting fact of Hollywood history. I think it has its good sides and its bad sides. I think from a Catholic perspective, we can be overly nostalgic for it and say, oh, why couldn't movies just be like that all the time? And I think that is a little bit reductive. I think some of the amazing stories that have come from cinema have been after this time and couldn't have been made during that time. I do think it's a little bit small to say that we should have only had this one set of approaching filmmaking and storytelling. You also mentioned that there were some problems with the code that we would definitely frown on today, like not being allowed to show interracial couples. Yeah, exactly. Like that is something that is like a low point of these specific instructions. And by the way, the instructions themselves were extremely comprehensive. I think I've got a quote on it here. There was an article in First Things, which was... (laughs) cheekily called the golden age of censorship, but it says the code was the handiwork of motion picture herald editor Martin Quigley, a Catholic, and Daniel A. Lord, a Jesuit. The code was astonishingly comprehensive in what it asked filmmakers to omit. In the version approved in 1930, the code predictably forbade nudity, graphic representations of violence and profanity. It also prohibited scenes of drug trafficking, arson, disrespect to the American flag and cruelty to children or animals. And it says that the code could be over the top. There's no other way to read the warning against dances which emphasise indecent movements and at times in, in the manner of its era as its prohibition, like you said there, Phoebe, of interracial relationships. But I think the article does a good job of, of highlighting some of the nuances around it. It, it. it quotes a film historian, Thomas P. Doherty, saying, the document was not a grunted Jeremyad from blue nose fuss budgets, but a polished treatise reflecting on the long and deep thought in aesthetics, education, communications theory and moral philosophy. And I think that kind of shows in some ways, because as much as I feel like we're, we're modern Catholics, so I think there's always two things warring against it. There's the yearning for a more, for media to represent a kind of moral world in which we more aspire to. But there is also a sense of like, limiting the creativity of people and, and, and not approving of things like censorship to that, that extent, I think. Particularly as we're feeling now in the modern age, there are some some instances of like, there, there's a certain degree in which we're seeing Catholic opinion censored. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things of good for the gander, good for the goose, you know? Um, yeah, and also even to say that sometimes the portrayal of those things in a meaningful way, like, they, they are stories that need to be told, even if they're hard to watch. Like when we were talking about Hacksaw Ridge yeah. ages ago. Um, that That's something that would never have gotten past this censorship code. And obviously I struggled immensely watching it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it wasn't worth making. Or even like a moral film. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a really good point to remember. But to give it, uh, I guess, some credit, which is to say that like in some ways it's it's maybe perhaps telling that some of the greatest movies ever made were made during this era. You yeah, know? I mean, to give it a lot of credit, because I think we're automatically kind of on the side of it. But <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no. I'm, defi- I'm definitely more in the middle. Yeah, I- in the mi- on the middle, in the middle. But 
Um, I also think that there's a danger in Catholics looking back to any era and sort of seeing it with rose tinted glasses. Like the code was also to try and um, limit the behaviors in Hollywood itself, like not just on screen, but off screen as well. Um, and I think it had some degree of success, but there is still all kinds of horrible stories yeah. of um, actresses being pressured into abortions or taking drugs or being forced to take drugs in order to perform so that they could get through the day, things like that, that like, you know, what we're being presented with and what I'm going to talk about shortly as a, as a really positive thing of this like glamorous world wasn't necessarily the lived reality of the people behind the scenes as much as we might kind of like to imagine that that's what what was happening um and so again I, I i'm always just trying to make sure that people don't build up a particular era or a particular time in a very unnuanced way i think it's always good to take what is good about an mm. era without um being so precious about wanting to return or wanting to rebuild it and and recognizing the ways that human life is always complicated and not straightforward yeah we can enjoy these movies even if we don't quite approve of everything that went on behind them. Yeah, exactly. In some ways, that's a kind of caveat before we launch into it. And it does, I guess, I know this is maybe a slightly long intro to it because this, the you know, the Hollywood censorship um, background is not what we're talking about today. But I think it does provide a really important context for these films because they are products of their era they're products of their era in several ways they're products of their era because they're coming they're starting in world war ii coming out of world war ii so there's this sense of wanting to have things that lift you out of this kind of awful situation that the world is in and bring you somewhere else they're also you know the 1950s had this big boom in economic consumerism and and you know, there was a kind of a, a quick increase of wealth after a time of quite limited means. So you've got this more glamorous and more more materialist culture in a way, which maybe isn't actually necessarily a good thing from a Catholic perspective, but does feed into this uh, the, these amazing films with their sets and their costumes and their lush, glamorous representation of life, you know? But also, like I said... The code feeds into some of this because they are so decently good, you know? Yeah, you've got this quote from the code that says that no picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Mm. And I think that's part of it that we can kind of look at and go, that is such an amazing thing to aspire to in the making of any form of art. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point, which is just that these movies are so uplifting and everything about them is designed to uplift both morally and emotionally and all of these things. And I think that's what makes them kind of unique for this time and hard to replicate now. Like, I just don't think their earnestness or their innocence in some way can be replicated in our, mo- our modern movie musicals. Because I guess that's another point, maybe we'll talk about it a tiny bit it's not really what I want to talk about today but you know there is kind of a boom of movie musicals at the moment for me at least I feel like at best they've been kind of hit or miss 
And uh, I'm also certain that the golden age of Hollywood produced a bunch of really terrible musicals. It's just that we don't go back and watch them. (laughs) If they flopped, they got forgotten about. Exactly. Quite often their film got literally printed over with another film. So there is no way to um, get them back. (laughs) Yeah, there's all kinds of amazing Hollywood things about like the finite material that they had to use. That you just get things that like, I'm going to talk about sets and things like that, that like great pieces of art are just painted it over because they just need another canvas you know just the the real practicalities of when before digital age of like you had a limited resource of things like film itself to film things on they were masters of reduce reuse recycle (laughs) yes but maybe to our detriment we lost a lot of really amazing stuff because of it but yes so that like it, it is interesting to kind of look at maybe a little bit why these musicals are different to the modern ones but I think just their decency and their goodness is a really good place to start they're so uplifting to watch and and they kind of I always come away feeling like I've done something that evening that was worth doing more so than watching a lot of other kinds of movies worth doing and a lot of fun at the same time Mm -hmm. not one or the other (laughs) yeah (laughs) but I was saying to you Phoebe that If I had to put a specific term on it, I would say that these films delight. Yeah. And I think everything about them is engineered to delight people. Um, To the detriment, in some cases, of storytelling. I think the delight aspect is more important than the storytelling aspect. Yeah, as we'll talk about later, some of their plot lines are weird. Yeah. (laughs) shaky cobbled together don't really make sense yeah there is definitely some of the movies and it's funny how i think the very best of the best combine great storytelling with delight but there are also plenty of examples that really just lean into the delight of the music or the sets or the acting or even just the the beautiful actors being cast that the storytelling aspect can kind of take a back seat without spoiling the whole effect of watching the movie. Yeah, you have to have some plot line. Yeah. But <laughs> but it can be it can be a fairly rickety rackety plot line. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's in some ways the difference I think between film even now that the that there is a kind of freedom to say oh well maybe the the plot line isn't the most important thing it's this delight and I think it's Like I said, the best of the best, I think Singing in the Rain is an example of a really great movie that also has a great storyline. Yeah, absolutely. You can actually sell someone on that storyline as well as on the music that goes with it. Yeah, and like I said, I think most people, if they're at all interested in this area of films, have seen Singing in the Rain. And we did try to, for the other ones, we've tried to look at ones that are maybe not so famous, but just in case anyone hasn't seen Singing in the Rain, maybe, Phoebe, do you want to sum it up? Sure. Um, So the film is about a silent film star who's played by Gene Kelly, who falls in love with a chorus girl, played by Debbie Reynolds, in the midst of this transition to talking pictures in in 1920s Hollywood. So together with his musically talented buddy, played by Donald O'Connor, they come up with this idea of making a potential flop of a film into a musical dance number. And in the meantime, his glamorous but delusionally jealous screen partner, played by Jean Hagen, is making life difficult for them, not least because her voice is entirely unsuitable for talking movies. (laughs) It's wonderful. It's this great... Especially her character, because they kind of cleverly don't make her talk until... 
a good chunk into the movie and so she's this ethereally beautiful movie star and then as soon as she talks it's just this nasal scratching voice she she's just all like and i can't stand him there we go (laughs) (laughs) and of course this wasn't an issue in silent movies and and it's kind of interesting that it's a movie set it obviously made it was made in 1952 but it's portraying hollywood in the 20s and uh this transition from silent movies to to talkies and then on into musicals and so it really is a movie about music and about making films which i think makes it even more interesting from looking at this era that like it is a film about film craft and a great one for us to talk about yeah exactly and i think it's it's interesting to just pull out one thing that there was i was listening to a talk i think i recommended on the podcast before called why hollywood matters by barbara nicolosi but she pulls out the fact that filmmaking is um the combination of literature performance music and composition composition in that case meaning like painting and and artistic composition yeah um and so that is one of the things that makes film and especially film of this era that's so music based um kind of interesting in that it is the sort of meeting point of a lot of different art forms and i think sometimes we can there are people who really turn their nose up as at film as an art form and i do think it's different to other art forms and it's definitely it it, it is worth questioning or exploring where it sits within the field of art and artwork but i think there's no denying that that it is artistic expression and especially at its very best it's certainly artistic expression Um, not least because it facilitates a whole number of other forms of what we recognize as art yeah like we're going to talk later about painting but also all the music yeah and i think maybe the the music is maybe where to go into because another thing that i wanted to say about these movies which makes them so interesting as a as a modern viewer is that they're much more centered on this idea of it being a almost like a theatrical performance they did this on purpose it was part of their marketing of these films they took them on what were called road shows which were essentially very fancy nights at the cinema where everyone was treated quite glamorously and these were actually very expensive and ended up kind of ending the era of the hollywood musical but That's a shame. Those sound like a lot of fun. Yeah. And they were kind of the first example of merchandise. You used to get like branded copies of the songs as part of your evening. But this is where we get like another film we're going to talk about shortly. High Society opens with a title card that just says Overture for a good five minutes as the music plays or intermissions or there is a sense that this is more like watching a ballet performance or even a symphony that there is this expectation on the audience that they will be very engaged in just observing music happen or dance happen without it necessarily furthering the plot and without it having to be realistic in any way that you're drawn into this as an escapist movie Mm. that isn't trying to show you a reality. Yeah. Um, so it's that suspension of disbelief that allows you to then just enjoy the fact that they burst into song and dance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Seeing the Rain does it unbelievably well. Yeah. It's just so great. There is an article which I adored. I'm such a Gene Kelly fan. I once went to an evening which had 
clips of his movies but with a live orchestra playing and his his wife was, he was married several times with his last wife who is still um who is still alive and just a wonderful person was presenting the different anecdotes that she had about it and she like collected a lot of his like stories and memoirs about things and it was a, an amazing evening i'm such a gene kelly fan so i could watch singing in the rain all day every day but there was an article called the healing power of gene kelly and as and I think even if you haven't seen Singing in the Rain, I think everyone's seen him singing the song Singing in the Rain. In fact, in Ireland for a long time, it was the ad for the lotto. <laughs> they pretty much just played that scene and had a, a, a text up at the end that said play the lotto. Um, uh, but the article says... Um, a Gene Kelly musical can take you out of your living room into a Technicolor dream world or even a more colourful version of real cities. Thanks to Hollywood's ability to recreate a more vibrant in interpretations of places, Kelly got to dance in the best settings you could imagine. Kelly's musicals give you the, the ability to escape to a better version of reality. And I think that's so present in the... And we're again, we're going to talk a little bit more about the sets a little bit later, but just that kind of escapism through music and through dance and and movement like it's just so exciting to see it on screen but it's not even just big musicals that do it like i find it amazing i love the marx brothers comedies but they have sections with dance or even there's always as far as i know there's always a section where harpo and chico whip out amazingly managed to out of all kinds of extraordinary situations whip out a harp and a piano and, and play it for a good 10 minutes of the movie and it's just watching them play there's no other things kind of going on it's usually pretty funny yeah they're but... they're hysterically <laughs> yeah. funny but it's funny through music mm, yeah as in like they're usually dancing and playing at the same time and doing yeah. all sorts of crazy things but yeah it's great yeah and you know the, these films are just so confident in its audience as being engaged by culture and not just the movie that they're there to consume culture in a way to watch ballets to watch um musical performances even if it's just someone playing something not even like a a kind of production um, and like that dream sequence of dance and singing in the rain <laughs> that it just goes off into a random tangent to show off a load of people dancing yeah well there's a whole section near the end called broadway melody where they're in the context of the film they're pitching the opening of the film that they're making and so it goes into this like surreal world of dance and music and then within that there's a dream sequence in which he goes into an even more surreal ballet um se sequence with like a backdrop of i think it might have been done by salvador dali this amazing sort of hazy pink cloud landscape and they're just doing ballet and then it snaps back to their 1920s cool cat jazz intro to the film and then obviously it snaps back out of that into the film um, and I think there was like a confidence in some way that that audiences wanted to see not just a story but art and music and performance itself in these films. Yeah and in a way there's almost a democracy to that that says that not everyone can get to a ballet or to like the high theatre but that some of that can be brought into these other art forms and that we trust that everybody would enjoy them that they're not like a reserved class for the people who really want to go and sit through a full opera yeah absolutely I think I even read that there's a term for um 
these psychological ballet dream sequences that pop up in quite a few of the movies. The other very notable one is also another Gene Kelly movie called An American in Paris, which is a totally goofy movie with a strange plotline in it. But the last 17 minutes of the film, which when you're watching a film is a very long part of a film, is a totally silent. And the, the words never come back. It ends without any other words. But it's a totally silent, in terms of speaking, ballet sequence set against a surreal artistic rendering of Paris which is based on various famous French artists like Toulouse-Lautrec and I think maybe Renoir or something like that that like it pulls together all of these famous artists and uses their artistic styles to do this artistic version of Paris which the two actors and many other dancers dance through in this amazing ballet sequence. I think the the film was directed by or at least the art direction was by Vincent Minnelli and he was so bold in that choice but it was very popular at the time and it's funny how I think a lot of modern movies do push sensibilities or do explore artistic expression. I'm not trying to say that they don't but I'm not sure there's that many films that would have like mainstream popular films that would have the confidence to just put the whole last act almost of their film as a silent ballet sequence. Imagine trying to pitch that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it is really beautiful. It's amazing. Very satisfying to watch too. (laughs) Yeah. And so I just think it's interesting to remember the kind of cultural aspirations that we maybe once had that did form popular entertainment. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the reasons why it may be a little bit daunting to go back to these films in in modern eras. I'm trying to think. I think there might be some streaming services that do classic movies. In America, I think there's like Turner classic movies. But honestly, I find it very hard to find them. Even amazingly, if you're to rent them on iTunes and stuff, sometimes they're very cheap, but sometimes they're really expensive. I find it kind of baffling how difficult it can be sometimes to find these these older movies and some of that is because like we said the plots are kind of crazy and so if you're describing the plot to someone they go oh I'm not really interested in that and I think if we had a better sense of saying no no you'll want to see the spectacle of this music and this performance and this dance I think you've got a much better key into what makes these movies exciting and fun and compelling yeah like imagine singing in the rain without the song singing in the rain yeah like that's just a something you're not interested in in anymore but that with the whole thing put together Mm. it's still got a good plot but it's about that musical arc and the journey it takes you on yeah and i just think that they're so exciting because they're 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 often very brave in the way that they foreground the musical choices or the artistic choices even over the plot choices which i think is maybe most telling in 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 the films that we've pulled out the, the kind of the craziest one or the loopiest one is a, a film called Funny Face with um, Fred Astaire and Audrey Hepburn in it. I don't know, Phoebe, maybe you, you, you've done up the summaries for the film, so I'll let you take ownership sure. and read them. Um, so this one is a um, production from 1957, but it's very loosely based on the 1927 Broadway musical Funny Face um, by the Gershwin brothers and that featured 
the same male star, Fred Astaire. But the plot is completely different, apparently. I didn't look up the original plot. (laughs) Um, And only four of the songs from the stage musical are included. And the movie starts off with a fashion magazine that sort of abruptly decides to use a bookshop as a a setting for a photo shoot. And they just invade this bookshop and shove aside the shy, naive, dowdy shop assistant who's played by Audrey Hepburn. I I will say, and I'm going to say how much I love Audrey Hepburn, it is always hysterical to me that whenever she's cast as someone dowdy. I know, (laughs) they manage to like dress her up in these like dowdy clothes and make her seem like almost like someone that you wouldn't expect but not really barely passable <laughs> barely as, passable uh, as dowdy barely passable as uh, not stunningly beautiful at every moment <laughs> like how would you not want to put her in the center of every photo regardless of what she's wearing <laughs> yeah anyway you've got this crew in there making a whole mess of the shop and then at the end of that kind of trauma destroying the shop um the photographer who's played by Fred Astaire is helping her clean up um and like put all the books back on their shelves and the romance sort of starts but it's always a romance that's quite hard to really get on board with (laughs) yeah I think it's because um you know Fred Astaire is so amazing as a dancer and so engaging as an actor and it was actually I think a lot of the times when we see movies with a big age gap because this was at the end of his career and obviously so he's quite old and Audrey Hepburn is quite young and that and they've deliberately made her look even younger and more innocent yeah and so it definitely especially as a modern audience it reads a little bit strange I will say that the reason why that is is because Audrey Hepburn um, was the one that they wanted to cast in the movie and she insisted that it be Fred Astaire that she um, played opposite that's fun um, I don't know whether it was a combination of him having been in the original stage play that she wanted to carry that on. I think some of it was also that she just wanted to act with Fred Astaire. So there are many examples of slightly creepy uh, Hollywood pairings. But in this particular instance, it's not as bad as it looks. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, then you have like this whirlwind of the fashion magazine trying to recruit her and convincing her to come to Paris with them. And the main reason she goes is because she's an amateur philosopher who really wants to hear like these lectures from a particular philosopher. And when in Paris, she like abandons half of their photo shoot work or whatever they're supposed to be doing to go off and sit in dark cafes and talk about philosophy with people mm-hmm. or uh, go to somebody's lecture. Um, so you've got all of that like drama as well as the romantic scenes with Fred Astaire and just a load of dancing and music yeah and you know a a bit like American in Paris they you know they just make Paris look so glamorous and amazing but Funny Face is in some ways an, an interesting film it does a lot of things quite stylistically again I'd say it's less musically centered than an American in Paris yeah um, but it is more maybe artistically centered it has a lot of I, I always remember those those dark cafe sequences they do a lot of very sort of angular dancing and it's all a little bit kind of over the top and over overly stylized but in a quite fun way yeah and then you have like the glamour of their photo shoots at all these pretty locations mm-hmm. yeah and I think maybe glamour is a good word to to like sit with for a moment because I think that's the other thing that these films really achieve and it's interesting I've talked about this with friends before about how I think it's actually surprisingly hard to 
conjure up the same sense of glamour in our modern age. And it's interesting because we're recording this maybe, I think, like two weeks after the Met Gala, which is, you know, the, the big glamorous fashion Hollywood event. But I just... I find it interesting, and it's not just a question of personal taste, like, oh, I prefer the dresses back then, which I do, but I think it is also just a more... Our modern age has, in many ways, and for uh, arguably very good uh, good ways, democratised luxury, um, that even people who are not in the upper echelons of society can have things like smartphones and you know even like our ability to ape things that are quote-unquote glamorous are quite it's it's relatively easier to do because in some ways we've focused a lot less on this kind of obsession with quality over quantity and so that's a lot easier to to ape across different uh, classes and even the sense that I think a lot of very wealthy people now want to still be relatable and accessible and so they're kind of underplaying their their otherness and their I, I just think that there's less of an emphasis on on distinguishing yourself by dressing in these very fancy ways even on an ordinary basis yeah you could, like in terms of price tag you could have a five grand work dress and a like 50 euro copy mm-hmm. that looks very similar yeah yeah you know? exactly like obviously I'm sure you would be able to tell the difference if you knew what you were looking for. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like Hollywood portrayals of these things, a lot of them aren't the real thing anyway. Yeah. So then it's harder again. Yeah. And I think even the fact that, and again, I like I'm very ambivalent about what all of these things mean in terms of like our larger societal understanding, but there used to be more of a sense of like exclusion from the upper class when we come to, we're going to talk about high society in a minute, but there is like a whole song about like who wants to be a millionaire, I don't, which is this idea of like people kind of not necessarily relating to people across classes and that does feed into a sense of mystery or glamour. I think even the people in our current age who do lead what are our equivalent of very glamorous lifestyles, um, because they're always like sharing it online, they can feel very familiar to us, even if our own lives are very different in the ways that they look. Like it's mm. not, it's not something that we never get a look at anymore. Yeah, that's a really interesting contrast. That it's not just that like we can ape that society well, which we appreciate. We like nice clothes, mm-hmm. um, but also that we see that higher society so much on everything. Yeah. And there is still a sense in these that it would have been seen to some extent. Yeah. But, you know, it's not the same, like, seeing a picture in a newspaper mm. or a few pictures in the newspaper isn't the same as getting, like, somebody's video tour of their house. Yeah, exactly. And so I think these films kind of are able to embody a sense of escapism in a way that is kind of hard for us to do now just because because these images at least are so familiar to us that they're part of the world that you kind of need to escape from in some ways. Um, I think the closest we said we watched, there was a a modern rom-com called Crazy Rich Asians, which because of the particular kind of class structures still felt like there was some level, I don't think as successfully, but there is still some level of like this crazy world of wealth and luxury that we just have no concept of. Yeah. But I do think that these films just have 
a deeper kind of richer sense of glamour to them just because of the way that there there was differences in the way that we understood class and wealth and society structures but I think there's also a sense of like leaning into that glamour of kind of putting it up in a way of like oh you want to look like this Mm. not in a oh this is what people look like Mm. which I think a lot of modern movies play into this is what people look like but it's not actually what people look like it's all they are still done up and photoshopped and like it is still made up in a way but it's pretending that it's not made up. Yeah. Whereas this is very clearly being just aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think aspirational is a good word. Like I said before, this is an era of a kind of economic boom. And I think you, you can see that in the films. Like I both like Funny Face, I think the first song in Funny Face is this song called Think Pink, which is set in the offices of the, the fashion magazine. And it's essentially a big parade of different glamorous amazing costumes and singing in the rain has a similar section where it's um just a whole quite long song called beautiful girls which is an in-world little like film music number that they're doing in which a presenter shows off the different fashions of the age presumably that that was something that was shown at film theaters either before the film or something like that but like you know it is literally a song about oh and this is what you would wear to court and this is what you should wear at the swimming pool you know um that like it really leans into showing you like all of these amazing costumes that have no purpose except for you to look at them, you know? The costuming is so good. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Um, and they're so, yeah, like we said, I just, I think that ability to to have costumes that feel so aspirational is is kind of more complex. I don't think it's impossible, but it's certainly more complex in, in modern films. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, that strategization I think is really obvious in the musical High Society that I've been kind of referencing. Yeah, time to give a description of it? Sure. So, as you might guess, the film centres on a rich heiress. <laughs> she has to be rich. And she's played by Grace Kelly, who was called the most beautiful woman in the world. And she is, at the beginning of the story, she's engaged and about to be married to a man called George, who isn't important. Um, (laughs) He's a successful businessman in coal mining. Yeah. But her ex-husband and neighbour, Dexter, um, who's played by Bing Crosby, is back in town, and he's still in love with her, and he's sort of trying to win her back, assisted by um, her mischievous little sister, Caroline, who is very funny. And um, then... You throw into this, uh, like, among, like, you're set in the midst of these beautiful, glamorous, high society houses um, and these really lovely costumes. And then you've got these reporters coming up. As Rachel mentioned, they're the ones who sing the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Uh, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> While looking at all of the really fancy wedding, wedding presents yeah. that are laid out. And um, then there's a fling between Tracy and one of these reporters, who's played by Frank, Frank Sinatra. So you've got some great singing there. <laughs> and then, you know, she goes back off and falls in love with the other guy. The original, with yeah. the original guy, her original husband, her original husband. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think the the kind of the idea is that she has this fling with um, the Frank Sinatra character, which kind of makes her realize that 
she's been holding people to a very high standard and demanding them to be kind of unhuman while at the same time feeling upset that people treat her as a goddess on a pedestal rather than a person and so yeah the trajectory is that she she learns something about but it all happens within essentially a day um that she learns about herself and it allows her to open herself back up to being in love with her first husband um but uh, which is catholics we definitely approve of her getting back with her husband (laughs) (laughs) but it's 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 a story that sounds very bonkers and is kind of bonkers but in some ways i think the funny face example when you're watching it you're like this story is crazy uh whereas i feel like with high society there's something about those actors pulling off that story that feels a lot more like you're you're totally on board with what's happening like it feels quite natural for them to be doing this but it's yeah if you're describing it to someone you're like yeah that story is kind of crazy yeah uh, and it's not so much of a dance one but there are beautiful there is beautiful music in it and it's very like setting based as well it's very setting based on the locations which are amazing and it's also a strangely sort of um uh, focused on jazz music it's it has louis armstrong playing himself i think as uh, they have De- bing crosby's character throwing a, a jazz music festival in his house and so they're just there like diegetically which means like in the world of the mu- the movie playing music for people and so yeah you have this great kind of whole section about high society being introduced to this more like popular music of jazz which is this whole like again a, a kind of fascinating subplot for a popular movie which is about like expanding your horizons of music again another example of that glamorous there's so many scenes of just wealth and beauty and a giant library where a bar pops out of a wall if you push a book and all of these things are just over the top but very charming in the way that they're portrayed yeah they're really beautiful and definitely the kind of ones that make you i want to be in that life yeah definitely (laughs) but in a very like uplifting way as well yeah, I think so. Um, and maybe that helps that we're not in that era anymore. So it, it, it can only ever be sort of um, imaginarily aspirational. Maybe I don't know, maybe people at the time felt a bit differently, but it certainly feels to me like it, like that kind of Tolkien thing of the good kind of escapism, of taking yourself out of your, as Lena Lamont says in Singing in the Rain, your humdrum lives. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, but yeah that they're just these movies are so charming and I did promise that we were going to bring it back around to a very specifically catholic perspective and amazingly we're gonna um where we referenced reduce reuse recycle earlier I'm definitely getting a lot of mileage out of man alive since we did (laughs) the episode two episodes ago and I referenced it in the last episode and now I'm making a strong point on another quote from Man Alive, which I don't think we've mentioned before, but there's this amazing section where Innocent Smith in Man Alive is talking to someone and the the person references Ibsen's play, The Dollhouse. And he makes this really, really interesting point. uh, Innocent Smith says, the dollhouse, he cried vehemently, why that is just where Ibsen was so wrong, why the whole aim of a house is to be a doll's house. Don't you remember when you were a child how those little windows were windows while the big windows weren't? 
A child has a doll's house and shrieks when the, a front door opens inwards. A banker has a real house, yet how numerous are the bankers who fail to emit the faintest shriek when their real front doors open inwards. And then he goes on to say that what this the journey that Innocent has been doing around the world is part of this kind of experiment that he's doing. He says, I have found how to make a big thing small. I have found out how to turn a house into a doll's house. Get a long way off it. God lets us turn all these things into toys by his great gift of distance. Once let me see my old brick house standing up quite little against the horizon and I shall want to go back to it again. I shall see the funny little toy lamppost painted green against the gate and all the dear little people like dolls looking out of the windows. For the windows really open in my doll's house. I love that. I think we both had doll's houses as kids yeah. and loved them very much. <laughs> really loved them. And I think it's really interesting to think about that because, again, as always, Chesterton does get at something that I would have considered unarticulable <laughs> like yeah I don't think I could have said that but there that that was my experience I don't know whether everyone shares it but that those things are more real than the real things yeah the miniature the real matters more yeah and I yeah. think that's why people have always been fascinated with miniatures whether it's you know railways or little toy dolls or all kinds of ways that people are fascinated by seeing the things that they know very, very small. <laughs> yeah. And that brings us to the last movie we're going to talk about, mm -hmm. which is set in the era where these dolls' houses were really a big thing, <laughs> um, which is Mary Poppins. Yeah, we rewatched Mary Poppins recently, and it's just such a wonderful film. Obviously, it's maybe in a slightly different category being a Disney film, but I think it is definitely part of this canon of great movie musicals of the era, live action ones especially, although it does have that amazing animated sequence in it. Yeah, like it is a. When we talk about escapist movies, like, this is very deliberately a fantasy. I mean, come on, she arrives sailing over London on her umbrella, but. It is also that same escapist world, mm. you know? Yeah, definitely. And if you don't know Mary Poppins, I mean, come on, get with the program. <laughs> Stop whatever you're doing, go and watch it, come back. Yeah. But yeah, as Mary Poppins arrives as, as the nanny floating in on her umbrella, it's just so magical, like you said. But I think... What is interesting about it is, is that these movies, and it's really clear in Mary Poppins, manages to create what I'm going to call the, this dollhouse feeling, which is that feeling of watching something that is very obviously not real, but feels more real. And I think some of this really goes into how the mechanics of filmmaking operated at the time, which is, you know, again, just another fact of like history in some ways that has changed and I think it does change the tone of movies things like that I, I find really fascinating are the the matte painted backgrounds in films um, which were in many ways the standard way of making sort of these amazing fantasy or 
dramatic historical backgrounds in films that are now largely made by CGI. And I'm not at all trying to denigrate people who do CGI. And even they, they do a form of sort of digital painting or even some of them do real paintings and then scan them and then digitally manipulate them. But this was a very specific art choice and style that has a particular effect on these movies that I adore. And to put that in visual context for anyone like me who wouldn't know what you're talking about, if you're thinking about Mary Poppins, that scene of her coming in on her umbrella, that whole backdrop of London is painted. Yep. That's a painting. Yep. (laughs) And it feels so real and so much depth to it. And yet, so like beautifully set out. Yeah, and yeah. like uh, some of some of the kind of famous ones are are more historical. So you've got like the cityscapes of ancient Rome and Ben Hur, or you've got more fantasy ones like the long shot of the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz. But there are also like very simple ones like often a sky in the background will just be a painted sky. Um, they were able to blow up photos to d- that size, but it's really interesting that actually the photo versions of them don't light as well if you're when you're light a film that actually a painted version you can make it rest within the the film much better than often a, a photographed one interesting um even some of the things that like we just don't even think about anymore in the original star wars trilogy a lot of the interiors and exteriors of the death stars um or the like the different like the jab of the hut's palace or the exteriors of the cloud city these again these like in this case science fiction but these sort of fantastical fantasy settings uh, it's amazing to see the detail that went into these paintings that are either dropped in the background of films or they were even composited in afterwards which meant layering um the the different elements of film on top of each other but yeah they're just amazing and i think to me they create a particular tone and a particular and I, I'm going to say this, but I mean it positively, artificiality about these films. They have their own kind of world that you're entering into. Like, this is a film world, and it's not our world. It is the film world. Yeah, and you're invited to forget about how it might have been filmed and accept the reality that's presented in front of you. Yeah, and I think it works particularly well. Like I've mentioned, there's a lot of non-musical examples in there. Uh, But I think it works particularly well for musicals. There's uh, a quote that I have thought about a lot, which is from Howard Ashman, who was kind of the genius behind the Disney Renaissance in the early 90s with A Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Um, He was really, really in tune with how music and musicals work. And he was a a big fan figure in Broadway theatre and things like that and he has a quote which is saying that like he thinks that movie musicals don't really work a lot of the time and actually the thing that he's excited about is animation because animation has more license in the way that theatre has more license because you're not pretending that it's real um that you you know if you're sitting in a theatre you know it's a painted scene you don't think that you're on a street you don't think that you're in uh, the Oz, you know, you're just sitting there and you know that it's happening in front of you. And so it feels less strange than when someone bursts into song and starts dancing. And the same with um, animation as well. Like, I think that's the truly misguided thing about the live action Disney remakes, which is that the fact that they were animated was so central to the reason why they worked as musicals. (laughs) 
um, that like you can have be our guest uh, in an animated film. And I know they did it for the live action film, but I do think you do have that feeling of like, yeah, is she just sitting at a table while a load of plates are singing to her? Like you have that moment of thinking, yeah, this is a weird thing in a literal sense. Whereas in an animated film, you, you don't have that kind of need to suspend your disbelief in the same way. In an animated film, of course the candlestick is talking. Why wouldn't it talk? Exactly. And so in the same way, I think actually these golden age of Hollywood movies find it easier. And I don't know whether Howard Ashman felt this way, but because like I said, he said that he didn't think that live action mu- musical films worked as well. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what he thought about these older musicals. But to me, at least, because they have this tone of being a self-contained world that is its own atmosphere and its own specific parameters that isn't trying to make you believe that people are actually singing and dancing and floating on the ceiling and jumping into chalk pavements, you know, that it, it allows you to enter into that musical world more easily. Yeah, definitely, that you can really enter that world and just go into a place where it's natural for people to burst into song and be able to dance perfectly in step. And you're not like watching it wondering like, oh, but when did they get the chance to practice that one, you know? Yeah. Whereas I think sometimes with modern musicals, that's the thought that comes into my head of like, they couldn't do that on the spot. Yeah. You're pretending they could do that on the spot, but they couldn't do that on the spot. Or am I really believing that everyone is getting out of their cars to sing a song right now? You know, (laughs) but like, yeah, I, I just find... As, as a big fan of musicals, and I think maybe it would be interesting for people to write in and tell me what any musical, film musicals that you like. You can tell me what stage musicals you like as well, although I do think that's maybe a slightly different category. But yeah, what modern musicals do you like? Like I said, there's been a lot. I have mixed feelings. Um, yeah, there are more modern musicals that we really love yeah. as well. So we're just not going into that <laughs> but, right now. Uh, but I would be kind of interested to hear whether people who like those older musicals find similar feelings in modern musicals. Because I definitely, to me, I can enjoy them, but they feel like a very different kind of genre from these older ones. Um, And I think this world that they create that is kind of recognisable across all the films is part of this, like you're entering into this world. And I think what's so compelling about it is this Chesterton point about it being more real like to me there's almost a sense that this is in a way representing life as it ought to be or that it it kind of really would be if we weren't fallen that like maybe in an unfallen world we would all be singing and dancing our feelings (laughs) I love that so much that I know in a way the reason why we aspire to this level, like why we find this level of beauty and music and art so aspirational is that it's part of what we're called to in our final destination, mm, you know? Yeah. Only like a side shoot of the glory of God. Yeah. Um, but that that is a part of the reality that we were made to have. Yeah, like I always think of the whole opening of the wizard of oz which and like i said there are amazing black and white musicals but i think there is something about this technicolor like i think it's so 
fitting that these movies were often advertised as inglorious technicolor, you know, that The Wizard of Oz opens with this black and white, quote, real world. And then the tornado comes and she gets taken up to Oz and she wakes up in this fantasy world that is suddenly in deep, saturated colour. And in in that way, while it, you're moving from real to fantasy, there's also a sense in which you're moving into deeper reality. That Because the world is full of colour. That's so cool. And that, and you know, and the world of Oz is maybe even more deeply saturated than our world. But there is that recognition that you're almost, it is at this, at the exact same time that it is more fake, I guess, it is also more real. Yeah. It's great. I don't know The Wizard of Oz yet. I will watch it soon. That, that is a must-do for the summer. I mean, one of the reasons we didn't talk about it was because I hadn't seen it. I <laughs> Sorry. Lo- I love The Wizard of Oz. But yeah, and I think maybe... Do we want to do a quick rundown of the films that we have watched recently if people want to have a little bit of a summer project... Um, These are the ones, there's a small number of these that we had seen previously, but like I said in my New Year's resolution to watch more of these older movies, a lot of these are movies that I hadn't seen before. By New Year's, you don't mean... Not this year. This year. year. A couple of years back. Yeah, I think this has Um, been about the last two, maybe three three years. But you get the sense. So, obviously we talked about Singing in the Rain. The one that goes with Mary Poppins is The Sound of Music. The other big Julie Andrews one. Yeah. Which I will say we have seen Sound of Music before I mean, this. we had both grown up with that. Yeah. And with Mary Poppins. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And then, when did we watch Easter Parade? Last year. Last year, yeah, for Easter. So, but it's a good summer one too. But that one's really fun. It opens with a really ridiculous dance sequence in a music, in a toy shop. Mm-hmm. Um, White Christmas and Meet Me in St. Louis are two more wintry ones. Mm-hmm. Then of the Audrey Hepburns, we've got Breakfast at Tiffany's, My Fair Lady, Roman Holiday, um, uh, yeah, and Sabrina. I'm, Sabrina, that's the one we watched really recently. I loved. Now, I think, I'm trying to think, I know she sings Moon River, obviously, in Breakfast at Tiffany's. I'm trying to think if there are any other songs in it. There's no songs in Roman Holiday either, as far as I remember. So these are some of the ones that aren't specifically musicals, but to me at least fall into this same category of like very escapist, very glamorous, very um, taking you out of yourself. Yeah, I mean, Breakfast at Tiffany's is sort of the epitome of glamour, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and another one in that category actually was uh, Shop Around the Corner, which mm. is the the 1950s film that then went on to inspire um, You've Got Mail. So if you like You've Got Mail, I would recommend Shop Around the Corner. It's a lot of fun. It is one of those strange occurrences where the remake is better than the original. Yeah, I think so. And that's a controversial <laughs> statement. But I do think that the remake is better, but that there's a lot of really wonderful stuff in Shop Around the Corner. Yeah, and I think even by contrasting the two, because we were trying to ask ourselves whether You've Got Mail would be a modern example of what we love in these in these these 1950s movies but we kind of said no in that like obviously we love you've got mail but that it's more real Mm. and less taking you into this other world yeah whereas the shop around the corner has still got that like exaggerated tendency that is more escapist than real yeah 
Um, and then some of the other not totally musical, they kind of walk the line between them, is um, the Marx Brothers films that I mentioned, the comedies. So A Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races are my favourites. I know a lot of people talk about Duck Soup. I have watched it. It's been a very long time. I need to revisit it. I think I was expecting A Night at the Opera and it's very different to that. So I don't think I necessarily got the hype around it. So I need to rewatch it. And then a couple of the other musicals that we loved were Guys and Dolls. Mm. That was so beautiful. That was kind of what started us on this hunt. Yeah. Um, because we saw that in the cinema, mm. in like a really plush old cinema in Dublin. It was great. And then... Um, the King and I, which you had seen, I hadn't, and Thoroughly Modern Millie. Yeah, Thoroughly Modern Millie, again, is one of those films that has a lot of fashion and not a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a lot of fun. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. So yeah, that's our list. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm sure there are some others that we've missed off. But if, you, if you're looking for a place to start with some of the old classic musicals, that, that's not a bad one. I would also recommend Born of Wonders episode on Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, that's great. Um, um, that really gives a lovely insight into her as a person mm. rather than her movie work. And it's really, really heartwarming. Yeah, really lovely. So that is maybe a summer project. Another summer project, just before we close out here, is just to let you know that um, Phoebe and I are currently, I'm re-listening, Phoebe is listening for the first time to the audiobook of Brideshead Revisited. And so um, in all likelihood, that will be a very, if not the first episode back, early episode back when we come back in September and so if you wanted to get ahead and read along or or have it prepared beforehand um, it would be really fun to hear from anyone who decides to read Brideshead Revisited this summer. And unlike some of the movies we listed which are not all summer movies, Brideshead Revisited is I am told a very summary book. Yeah. Um, We've listened to the first like hour or two and I love it so far so looking forward to it. And yeah, if you come across any great old movies, new movies of this vein Mm. that you want to tell us about, do get in touch. Absolutely. And so now that we've been banging on about what we've been enjoying, (laughs) why don't we finish it out with what we've been enjoying? Phoebe, what have you been enjoying at the moment? Well, in the theme of miniatures, I got a book haul recently that included a book on dollhouses and how to make your own and how to make the small furniture within it. And I love it. Wonderful. And I'm also reading The Narnia Code and really looking forward to your episode with Michael Ward, which will have come out by the time you you hear this, but we're recording before it's come out. Mm -hmm. So yeah, great book, highly recommend. Excellent. Yeah, like I said, we also need to read the longer Planet Narnia uh, version. I think that will be another uh, collective read through that we're doing in the flat. Um, And then I think for myself, I'm going to say that I am enjoying the cryptic crosswords in the Financial Times. (laughs) I'm expecting that. I don't know whether I've recommended this before or not. (laughs) I don't think so. But I am not terribly good at cryptic crosswords. I am... You're much better than I am. (laughs) Well, luckily I also have friends who are much better than than me. And so I have... I do try to do them myself, but I have been visiting friends recently, which has meant that I've been able to do them in person with friends. Um, And I've also... um, 
set up a, a WhatsApp group or it's it's currently a group on Instagram just to catch all the necessary people um, where I post the photos of the the crossword and we all work on them together, which um, I remember my dad saw me doing a crossword and then on my phone constantly. And he was like, oh, you can't just look up the answers. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not. I'm actually debating this with friends. I'm doing this as a group, which maybe some people still count as cheating. But anyway, I very much enjoy it. It's a lovely activity. It's so funny because it's also how my parents do crosswords. Yeah. <laughs> um, of like reading them out to each other. So yeah, group crosswords a great fun. I'm the person who sits in the group and watches all of the conversations <laughs> and occasionally contributes, but only very occasionally. Yeah. And cryptic crosswords are such a, a new thing for me that like they're a really interesting way of like playing with words and anagrams and clues and signals and abbreviations. So they are it's almost like learning a different language, which is a lot of fun. So that's what I'm enjoying. And I'm also enjoying having the summer ahead and I I have some lovely plans this summer I'm doing some traveling Phoebe's got some lovely family plans this summer mm-hmm. and it's yeah it's very exciting to be entering into a kind of a more social time and I'm very grateful for it and I look forward to organizing some more episodes over the summer and ha- coming back with a bang in September and like I mentioned in a previous episode recently hopefully being a little bit more regular with the schedule if I can get ahead of myself during the summer a little bit uh, nobody seemed to care so <laughs> Yeah, there was there wasn't a, a I, I wasn't inundated with complaints, so thank you very much. Um, but I also wish all of our listeners a very happy summer, and I hope you have a wonderful time with friends and family this summer. And uh, thank you so much for listening. I can't wait to be back. Um, I'm so grateful that I get to do this podcast and actually have people listen. Um, I do find it amazing. Even when my friends tell me they listen, I'm always sort of a little bit amazed. So I really, really appreciate that people enjoy this podcast and what we have to say, even on frivolous matters like movie musicals. So thank you so much for listening. And um, if you want to keep up with the podcast and know when the next episode is, um, when we come back, do sign up to our newsletter. It's on rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast. You can sign up and so there'll, there'll be an email when the next episode goes out. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram, Risking Enchantment Podcast, or you can follow me on Twitter at Seeking Watson. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the coming months. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you.